Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Today's guest is Ian Boyden, a visual artist who works in painting, sculpture, land art, and other media. He has a background and degrees in art history as well as East Asian studies. He was recently named executive director of the San Juan Islands Museum of Art in Puget Sound, northwest of Seattle. He's also spent years studying, making, and exhibiting his art in Asia, much of it in Suzhou, China, near Shanghai. Ian joins us from his home on San Juan Island. Welcome, Ian. Thanks very much for joining. Thanks, Ted. It's great to uh, be talking with you. It's been really fun seeing your work on the web and uh, accompanying this uh, podcast. There'll be a number of links so folks can uh, sort of watch along while they listen to your comments. I was really struck uh, initially when Michelle Niehaus did a brief piece about you on her blog, Last Word on Nothing. And it was all about some uh, pieces you'd made about the tripod complex fire that were printed with inks that were actually made from the detritus from that fire itself. Um, Maybe you could say a little bit about how that whole project and the process came about. Yeah. um, So those pieces began uh, in 2000 and, um, well, let's see, in 2006, there was a huge fire up above Winthrop, Mazama, Okanagan, that area uh, called the tripod complex fire. And uh, the next year I was over there, I was hiking up in the Pacific Crest Trail, and uh, I happened to go and hike up Tiffany Mountain, which is right at the center of that, where that fire had taken place. And I didn't even know the fire had happened. (laughs) And I entered into what I thought was going to be a pristine wilderness, only to find that I was walking through this this landscape uh, that's completely unimaginable if you've never been in one. Uh, where the forest had once stood, there were these giant black spires that had been uh, completely sculpted by fire. And uh, what's kind of amazing about fire to me is that if uh, if you burn a match, if you burn a tree, fire leaves the same amount of detail on each one of them. So each one of these trees had just been completely transformed. And when the trees grow, they oftentimes spiral uh, as they grow upward. And you could watch where the fire had cur- had curved up around these pieces uh, and eaten out giant cavities. And all around me, the forest floor was completely black uh, with carbon that had fallen off over the, over the years since the fire. Giant boulders were all exfoliated uh, where the intense heat had hit them. And it really, it, it really struck me. I felt like I was walking through a, a giant piece of art. Uh, it was a very transformative walk, and I spent the next several years trying to make sense of it. When you say make sense of it, you've done a lot in the realm of landscape art. Is it making art in the landscape? Is it using the landscape as raw materials? What is your own definition of landscape art? It's a very interesting term, landscape. Uh, and I really like to make a differentiation between land and landscape, where the land is what it is that we see all around us. That's this sort of perceived uh, material. And then there's what we make sense of it and how we articulate that and how we transform that in our own mind. And at that point, it becomes landscape. So in this particular case, I began to see what I thought was going to be a walk through the land uh, and was going to uh, be something which I would then be transforming myself to try to you know, figure out what I would do as an artist or just as a thinker walking through it. And instead, I encountered something where this foreign um, 
this foreign entity, this fire had come through and had completely transformed that for myself. So it, in, in a sense, it reversed that process. And I kept trying to figure out, my God, what did this forest look like before it got burned? <laughs> and so, and then what can I do with that? Uh, since this is my perceived landscape uh, or land, um, what can I do to transform that? How can I make sense uh, of those materials? As I began to work on this carbon uh, and this carbon landscape, uh, actually these boundaries between human and the environment uh, for me began to dissolve. They began to break down. Uh, so where my received uh, acculturation, as you might have it, is that the human exists distinct from uh, the environment. Um, I think we're, we're told that over and over again. As I walked through that environment and as I began to process that over the, the last six or seven years, uh, eight years at this point, that that boundary between human and environment began to really dissolve, and it began to dissolve in some really interesting ways. Tell me more about the exact work you did. You used the carbon, and what did you do with it to make these beautiful works of art? Yeah, so when I, I make all of my own paints, I make all my own inks, and uh, I've, I've been doing that for years. I've been just really interested, especially in the history of Chinese carbon inks. But that's led me to make inks out of uh, all sorts of raw materials like meteorites and freshwater pearls, a variety of different fossils. Uh, and I'm really interested in, in what sort of stories those materials tell. Um, what is, what's locked up inside of them? And when I start to make a painting with them, then I try to use the logic of whatever it is I've learned. Um, the way in which my curiosity about that has actually released that information from, from that material uh, it works on my mind, and then I release that back onto the paper. So there's a reciprocal argument that's there. Did you, when you have these inks made from, uh, you say, pearl and shark's teeth and meteorites and, and the carbon from fires, do you then mix them with oils and use them as paint? Or what is the exact process for those of us who don't uh, who don't work in the arts that way? Yeah, yeah. To make a, an ink is really quite simple. Uh, you need to have a pigment and you need to have a binder. Uh, so for me, the binders have been uh, water-based binders. I look at shellac, um, gum arabic, casein, any number of, of different uh, water-soluble binders. You attach that to, uh, you, you mix that with whatever the pigment is, uh, and then you paint with that onto the surface. Um, so uh, in the case of these carbon inks, um, that binder is primarily animal glue. Uh, so that's, that's glue which has been rendered from uh, boiling down animal bones or skin. Um, in some cases, antlers, all sort, you know, there's all sorts of, there's a whole, uh, you know, pharmacopoeia of different uh, binders that the Chinese have loved to use over the years for their inks. So yeah, that's, I mix those together. And then once those dry on the paper, that binder dries, and that is what actually holds that uh, ink, those particles to the surface of the paper. It sounds like you're mixing four entirely different elements of nature. You've got the inanimate, you've got flora, you've got fauna, and then to the extent that we're something different entirely, you're the artist and creator that's pulling all of that together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So this is one of those great moments of mystery uh, where we get to see what happens when we bring a whole lot of um, you know, these disparate elements together. They almost end up collaborating together. Uh, they collaborate together to give us an, uh, a view of mind, um, something which we don't get to see very clearly all that often. You mentioned the word collaborate, which I find interesting because some of your other work is uh, artist books. And by definition, those are works of art that involve other people as well, not just yourself. Um, how are those collaborations? How do they come together? And how is the process different from when you're working by yourself on uh, individual works of art? 
Well, I'm really curious about other human minds um, and really interested in trying to see if I can have a form of connection with them. In the case of the tripod complex fire, um, the person that I ended up talking to um, and collaborating with was a poet named Sam Hamill. Uh, he's the founding editor of Copper Canyon Press and uh, a really significant American poet. I sent him um, numerous photographs, uh, photographs of my paintings, uh, ended up going and visiting with him, uh, becoming friends. And uh, he ended up writing a long poem. It was called Habitation, which is a three-part poem, and it addresses uh, all these different aspects of our conversations, uh, the, my process, this reciprocal material argument that I'm making, uh, and a lot of my ecological and environmental um, concerns. I wasn't expecting a, a poem like this to be written uh, in response to my work. Uh, I was expecting something that was maybe going to be more um, uh, allied to it, perhaps, or something like that. Uh, but this gave me this really extraordinary opportunity then to paint and to make these, uh, these works in response to someone who is responding to my original work. So again, this is this idea of reciprocity uh, that uh, began to bloom within there that I'm so attracted to for, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and so far, I've treated two of the parts of that poem. Uh, the first one is the first poem called Habitation. The second poem is Terroir, which I have yet to finish um, that book. And the third one is called Edible Earth. And what I did there was uh, I took all this carbon from the tripod complex fire, and I had an um, artist residency, scholar's residency at uh, Sujo University in 2011 and 12 to go and, and compile all this uh, original um, primary materials for our manuscript I'm writing about Chinese ink. And um, I took all this carbon with me to China with the intent of making Chinese ink sticks out of carbon sourced from a Northwest forest fire. But as it turned out, that didn't happen. Uh, and instead, through this kind of fortuitous, strange, uh, you know, set of, of <laughs> happenings, I, I encountered some people from Nanjing who make inkjet inks. And I gave them this, uh, this carbon, this, this bag of charcoal, and they made me inks uh, for an inkjet printer. And then I took the photographs of these um, trees and I then printed them with the ink made from the trees themselves. So you've now added technology into the mix along with all the different layers of traditional nature. Yes, yes, yes. I'm a great fan of, of taking the history of technology and trying to smash it all together. Were you pleased with how it came out of the printer or did it seem different and wrong because it wasn't uh, high touch and, and uh, directly related to your fingertips? Uh, no, I loved it, actually. Um, absolutely loved the way it it rendered on the paper. I was printing it onto Chinese rice papers, um, mulberry papers. And what was really interesting uh, for me is that as I was doing this and I was showing these to all these Chinese artists and uh, and friends of mine there, all of them kept remarking, my God, this looks like a Chinese landscape painting. Uh, how fantastic that you're making it with actual carbon-based ink. I ended up actually going and having that book bound by uh, this old man who's one of the great conservators of Chinese paintings. And so when that book was being made, it was actually up on the wall with all these Ming and Qing dynasty masterpieces that he was conserving for places like the Suzhou Museum, Shanghai Museum, uh, different places. So this, uh, this real aberration, this real novel 
moment within the history of ink ended up having almost an immediate uh, community um, of the very source of the tradition from which it had arisen. Uh, that was a real honor for me to have that book enter into that space. You seem very attuned to the traditions of uh, Asian, particularly Chinese art making. Uh, how did that interest develop? 2020 hindsight, right? You can see that it might have been there uh, from a very early age. We had this incredible uh, painting, this ink, ink, Japanese ink painting in my household when I was growing up of Bodhidharma. Uh, I didn't even know who he was uh, for most of that time, even though one of our my closest, uh, my parents' closest friends to me was this uh, man who was a uh, he was down at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. Um, but when I went into college, I wanted to be a anthropologist or an archaeologist. And to get into either one of those programs, you had to have first year French. And uh, I grew up on the Oregon coast. There was no you know, French program at that time. And so I enrolled in first year French. And that was also at this time when there was that first bit of, um, you know, computer registration, class registration. And who knows what happened. But when I got to that first year French class, uh, I was sitting uh, facing a Chinese teacher. And um, I was pretty sure that that was <laughs> that was not a French class. I absolutely fell in love with the class. Uh, I fell in love with the language. And the very next year I was living in Nanjing, China. And so from that point on, I think I was more or less completely obsessed for years uh, with Chinese art, especially with Chinese calligraphy uh, and painting. Uh, ended up going back there. I received this really great fellowship to go and study the early history of Chinese calligraphy as inscribed on stone, uh, which took me way out into the middle of all the these, these mountains looking for stones that a lot of people hadn't looked at for hundreds of years. And then speaking and, and interviewing all sorts of Chinese calligraphers about their the effect of these early transcriptions, these early inscriptions on their um, on their work. You describe your parents as having an illustration of Bodhidharma on the wall and a friend at the Zen Center. Was Buddhism, whether Japanese or Chinese, part of your upbringing? No, not. I mean, other than uh, this one friend, no. Uh, we went down there a few times. Um, I got to sit at the table in the at the Zen Center, uh, but I don't I don't have any uh, specific memories there that would be uh, significant. Um, but I will tell you that the tripod complex fire is really, I think, that point from which I entered into philosophical Buddhism. And when I was living in China early on, like I was talking to you about earlier here, I became really interested in Buddhist iconography. Uh, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I wanted to understand whatever that was uh, so I can identify everything there. But for whatever reason, I never actually went in and looked at Buddhist philosophy and never tried to figure any of that out. And when I was showing people this, these images of these burned trees, they kept saying the same word to me over and over again. They kept saying Nyapan. And Nyapan is the Chinese word for Nirvana. That was really striking that they were seeing this over and over again. And, and when they were saying it, they were also using it in a, in a way that linguistically that really surprised me. It was much more like they were saying a verb. Right. And I'd always understood Nirvana as a noun, um, as a place. It's a, you know, like a destination. And I think that's the sort of Jew, you know, problem. Right? I got a, the sort of Judeo-Christian overlay onto this concept and was seeing it like heaven. Right. You die, you go to heaven. Indeed, when you go back and you begin to look at this word, no, it's it's you're entering into a state of cessation, a state of extinguishing. 
So I thought, well, okay, I guess I really don't know anything about this. And uh, so the first thing I did was I went back and I looked at the etymology. I went into Sanskrit to see what the etymology of nirvana was. And to my amazement, discovered that even 2,000 years ago, this etymology was was in contention. So is it nirvana, where the, the, that V, that internal VA has been combined, or was it nirvana? So the, the, the primary etymology of that, it turns out, is the extinguishing of a forest which of course is exactly what these paintings are of, or these, uh, these photographs are of. But that etymology is lost in Chinese. They don't have that etymology in, in Chinese. It's simply a phonetic rendering of that Sanskrit term, just as it is in English. And yet when folks were looking at the images from an extinguished forest, they were pulling up that word. Exactly, exactly. And so that is the point when I thought to myself, this is really interesting, you know, when when I was studying Chinese, you know, this is post-cultural revolution, all the Buddhist terminology has been expunged from the textbooks. And having grown up in a, in a non-religious uh, household, I really didn't have a lexicon uh, for that type of, of, of experience um, or that way of making sense of the world. And I decided that I would take a, a journey of my own to try to figure out why is that word so important? Why were they so ex excited about this? these photographs being uh, images of nirvana? It was from there that I began to try to understand how nirvana might be understood as an ecological statement. It might be, actually, there might be a really deep ecology which is embedded in that term. What do you mean by that? Well, ecology is really the way in which we relate to our external world. When we look out upon our landscape and look out upon the world as it is today, um, especially living in China where the environment was just collapsing everywhere. Um, I think it's become clear to, to a lot of us at least that uh, we're really in a, a point of ecological, uh, we're just basically an ecological disaster. Human ecology is really fundamentally broken to have arrived at this state where we are now changing uh, our planet on this planet-wide scale. We've entered into this period called the Anthropocene. And I began to, I entered into a state of grief. I entered, entered into this state of despair as I sat there in China and was watching this entire landscape around me, just that I love so much simply dissolving this world that I live in and that I occupy and that I want to hand down to, you know, my daughter and the next generations in as good, if not better shape. It's just, it's out of control. And so that led me to this, the set of questions, um, you know, this idea of cause and effect. What is it which is, uh, what is causing these things? And you can look out and you can say, oh my God, okay, it's, uh, it's ExxonMobil <laughs> or it's TransCanada or it's, you know, you've got all these gigantic corporations that we like to point our fingers at. And I've definitely fought um, a lot of battles trying to stop various things from happening. Um, but in a sense, when you begin to look at cause and effect, it's like that's actually not there. They're not actually the, the cause. There's there's previous causes. And you, you can trace this cause and effect back and back and back. And ultimately, what I arrived at, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but this is where I'm sitting with it now. Um, I've arrived at the fact that that, that root cause is actually all of us. Um, it's actually within each one of us. We are the ones that are driving the car that needs the gasoline. We are also the ones who are driving the idea of self and this idea that the self is somehow distinct from the environment. 
uh, and that there is a great separation between the two of them. And so that broken spot in there, I think, is actually this is whatever it is, which is creating this illusory boundary between ourselves and our environment. And so how do we how do we break that illusion apart? Slightly before this all happened, I had this really extraordinary experience where I'd been sitting up in a mountain stream outside of uh, Walla Walla up in the Blue Mountains. And I'd had this experience where I actually didn't feel like I had existed. Um, I felt myself just sort of disappear into this stream. And it had been really upsetting to me. <laughs> I, hadn't, I really couldn't figure out what had happened to me that day. Um, but when I entered back into trying to figure out Nirvana and I was, I was taking this trip, what I discovered is that there's this whole part of Buddhism, which is a, a tool where they say yourself does not exist. And you have to battle with this and battle with this. And I thought, well, my God, maybe I'd had an experience which was similar to that. And perhaps what my friends are all seeing when they say, oh, this extinguished tree is Nirvana, what they're looking at is that extinguishing of that, of that self. Whether or not a burned tree is an extinguishing of the self of that tree or, or not, um, that's what they saw. Your own moment of cessation or satori, had that come out of um, practice of meditation or was that just a moment that arose while you were in the wilderness with no overt triggers? Uh, no overt triggers at all. Um, I just, I, I was out there, I was thinking a lot about self-portraiture. I was thinking a lot about, um, I take a lot of my work and I embed it into uh, energy systems uh, to see, I, I like to collaborate with the energies that are out there. So I have this whole set of self-portraits where I, I, I take them, I cast them out of foods uh, and I place them out into the environment and let birds and bears and fish and all sorts of things eat them and uh, carry them off. And I like to document that process through motion activated cameras, time-lapse cameras, um, infrared, ultraviolet, all these different things to try to figure out, you know, kind of what, what's happening in there and watch myself be consumed and spread out through that environment. The cycle of nature. Yeah, right. So I'm entering, I'm, I'm just basically making an argument about the trophic web there with animals. Uh, but then I began to extend that. I began to put these things into oceans to get bashed around by waves and into streams. Uh, and so I say there are no overt triggers, but of course, I, mean, I guess that's about as overt as it gets. <laughs> I mean, I'm just setting myself out there to be consumed um, within that environment and to, and to see what I learn about the environment by watching myself disappear into it. Do you have a formal meditation practice? You know, I, I do. Uh, I sit. I really like to sit. Um, and I like to watch. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly fond of watching light. And one of my great pleasures about moving out here to the uh, San Juan Islands is uh, there's a fantastic space where I'm able to go and just and look out at uh, a skyscape, which is being informed by water, and to try and watch that change uh, that's occurring uh, in, the, in, the, in the sky and to see if I can notice it changing. Sky and light change it at this rate, which is, I think it's below the threshold, generally below the threshold of what the human can really process. So you sit there and you meditate and then you're like, wow, okay, I know that everything has changed, but what is the exact nature of that? If you close your eyes for a couple of minutes and then you open them, you're like, holy crap, a lot of stuff just happened. <laughs> but if you maintain your eyes open, then uh, it, there's some, some something of a mystery right there. And these sound like non-traditional in the sense of coming from uh, Zen or Theravadan Buddhism, but rather 
uh, some of the core principles, but driven much more by your own experience than by the lore or rules or uh, teachings. Absolutely. Um, and that's just my own weakness. I, I just didn't, I've never had the, uh, uh, I've never had a, I've just never had a teacher. Why do you call that a weakness? It sounds like you have achieved a moment of Satori that many, 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 uh, certainly Westerners, but many individuals all over the globe spend years sitting on a cushion or on a chair trying to, uh, to achieve. And you, through your own, uh, endeavors, uh, reach that, uh, that process, that moment on your own. Well, I, I want to uh, just back up there and say that I'm, you know, I'm not sure that the, that was a Satori moment. Um, I think that it was an, it was a moment when a door opened, and I was able to see something um, or experience something that was very unusual. But uh, you know, doors also close, um, and there is. I think one of the reasons that I really enjoy art practice is because uh, it's through that practice that I, I believe we enter into these moments of opening. I'm uncomfortable with the, this term Satori because I, I don't really understand it. And to that end, I suspect that it hasn't happened, I suppose. Uh, but I. I am really, really intrigued by what happened that particular day where I was, that I was just describing where that, where I was sitting in the river. Um, and I've had multiple moments since where, as I've been practicing and, and uh, in my art, um, there have been these various types of openings, uh, that occur. Uh, and these are contemplative moments. They're oftentimes moments which exist completely, um, outside, you know, I'm just completely alone. There's no language that's going on. I'm simply working on something and I will feel, uh, very inhabited by the world itself. Um, you know, a, a place that it happens a lot is really unusual, or at least for me is, or surprising to me is in my kitchen. I really love to cook. And, uh, it's just, it seems like it really likes to happen inside the kitchen where I'll just be working. I'll be cutting a piece of ginger, uh, and listening to the sound, you know, you get the knife sharpened just right, you know, and you're slicing through there and you're listening to it and you're like, wow, that's just such a really nice edge on this knife as I'm cutting this ginger. And then suddenly you're like, whoa, uh, you know, time sort of splinters apart and, um, I end up feeling inhabited by this thing. And then you know, as you're finished, then suddenly you're halfway through the ginger slice and you're back in yourself again. It's that moment of flow. Yeah, that moment of flow. Exactly. Is art making something you do with a rhythm and a schedule or only when inspiration strikes? Well, it really depends. Um, I work a lot when I have a studio that's set up. I, I go out and I work uh, pretty, I work quite hard. Uh, there are days and days and days when you work and, um, you know, nothing seems to be working right. Uh, but I think that it's that that continued practice, those hours that you log uh, that allow for those days um, when something you actually get something right. It's Chuck Close's comment about how amateurs wait for inspiration and real artists just go out there and work every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. You've got a wife and a child. Is art making a family activity or something that's uh, you and you alone? Oh, no, no, no. I, I try to make it a, as much of a family activity as I can. I really like to, uh, I really like to work with them. Um, I've done a lot of collaboration, actually, with my wife. And um, my daughter is, you know, I think almost all kids are born as artists. They're born as uh, scientists. And it's our job to uh, keep those channels open. It's not our... our our job to open them is to keep them open and not let them get closed down by um, all the 
all the various forces that are out there that like to close them down. How old is your daughter now? Uh, she's 11. Does she have any particular media she likes to work in? Well, you know, when she was in China, it was pretty great. She really got into ink on paper, uh, which, of course, is uh, my great love. And um, I'll tell you a great story. She was there. Uh, and she, I bought her all this paper, this kind of fantastically um, ornamental paper with these, these big gold leaf circles in them. And um, it's not real gold leaf, obviously, uh, but really fantastic sort of places that she could compose her paintings into. And she made all these paintings of birds and uh, they're just fabulous. And so we had this exhibition and uh, we invited all of our friends. Uh, when you're living in China, oftentimes you have to live in a foreign, uh, they put all the foreigners into one building. Uh, so, you know, that building had people from Germany and France and Italy and Korea and Japan and all over the place. And most of those people all came into our house. They had no problem entering into our domestic space and enjoying the show and congratulating Gavia. Uh, but our Chinese friends, um, it turns out that you, you don't really have all parties all that often or, or you didn't at that time uh, in your own house. And so they were fairly nervous about that. But when they were looking at my daughter's paintings, they said, well, we need to see the models for those paintings. And I said, well, there are no models. These are paintings which came out of her head. And they were like, well, then how do you know if they're any good? That was a really interesting, interesting comment. And my daughter, who is also quite a sharp person, um, said, well, all you have to do is look at them. <laughs> yeah, pretty sweet. So they were looking for literal representation. And in her mind, they were representative regardless. Well, I think that they were looking for a, you know, this is very much a traditional model. So within a traditional art model, the quality of the art is its ability to carry on that whatever that particular tradition of image making is. Uh, so they were really looking at it from that standpoint. And I was looking at it from the standpoint of her practicing and really getting into birds and learning about birds through uh, brush and ink. You've talked a little bit about meeting and working with some folks in the Chinese traditions of art making. Who in the Western traditions of landscape or other art have been influences uh, in your own work? That's a great question. I grew up in a household uh, of artists. My father is an artist. Uh, so when I was growing up, we had a lot of clay people uh, that came through. Um, I didn't really understand that as unusual when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, it was quite unusual to have all these uh, major figures of the ceramic world coming through. And I got to watch them, um, got to watch them work uh, and discuss and try to figure out how to fire these giant wood-fired kilns and things like that. Uh, so I had a lot of conversations there that I think really prepped me uh, to a life of, of investigating things from the standpoint of material and from the standpoint of process. When I was in college, uh, I became really interested in bronze, uh, Chinese bronzes, uh, to the extent that I thought, well, gosh, maybe uh, maybe I should go into bronze casting in some way. So I, I went and uh, I apprenticed at a, a bronze foundry. I got to lot, work with a lot of uh, artists there. One of the things that I did while I was there is I, I cast, I made molds of uh, Bob Arneson's last uh, pieces. These were uh, two self-portraits called Chemo 1 and Chemo 2. And he was going through a uh, you know really vicious battle with cancer. And those were really interesting pieces for me because they, you know, he was sort of, you know, here's this guy who spent his entire life making self-portraits um, and here he was tearing his, his portrait apart and um, 
inscribing the bases of them with all these things. I shall not smoke. I shall not drink. I shall like all these different things, which um, might've kept him healthier or something like that in the process. And then he'd cast the, you know, he'd made them out of clay. He'd, they were form built out of clay and uh, had fired them. And I, I remember when I was working on those, I was really, I was in my early twenties and thinking ah, how fascinating that this is an object, which one day will break. It is also, it's, it's really fragile. It's going to break they'd wanted them cast in bronze. And so I was making the molds to make those bronze pieces and uh, really finding myself rejecting, really not wanting them cast in bronze because I really wanted the fragility of those pieces. So we have all this immortality complex about our artwork. You know, we, we make them out of archival inks and archival materials and we put them behind glass and we cast them out of bronze and we cast them out of resins we cast them out of make them out of whatever we can so that they don't change and i think that's a really relatively new advent um in the art world and if you look back you'll see that a lot of people were making artworks which were being set directly out in the environment and they would age they would get a patina they would um you know, be blown on by sand. They would get eaten by salt water and blown apart by, you know, photons from the sun. So I became more and more interested in making work which might have some sort of very direct response to environmental influences. Today's guest has been Ian Boyden, a visual artist who works in painting, sculpture, land art, and other media. And he's also the executive director of the San Juan Islands Museum of Art. He joined us from his home in Puget Sound. Ian, thanks very much. Ted, it was a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me here. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental 99 and used with their kind permission. A production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management, this has been The Work of Art. <laughs>